The doctors insisted it was their medications that had fended off a fatal threat from seizures. But I had a hunch music played some part, and it might also key her recovery if I could find the right formula in time. My name is Tafik Valiente. I'm a neurosurgeon at the Toronto Western Hospital, and my specific scientific and clinical interest is uh, epilepsy, and my long-term vision since I was a kid was to understand the brain. I'm Marjan Rafi, and I'm a postdoc fellow in Kremlin Brain Institute in the Neuron to the Brain Lab. And together we are basically studying how we can use music to reduce seizures in individuals with epilepsy. For me, music is, is a way to communicate with other people, is a way to communicate your emotions with other people, the joy, the peace the excitement that you feel by listening to music, and I love that fact about music. Welcome and thanks for joining us for a very special episode of Sounds Interesting. I'm Peter Boisseau. This is the story about the origins of our podcast. Much of it was recorded two years ago as we started our journey, but with the vagaries of the podcast world and the pandemic, this is our first chance to share it. It's the hardest story I've ever told, but I'm so grateful for the opportunity. It's about my former partner, a compassionate and courageous black woman living with epilepsy who found sanctuary in her music, even in the face of relentless prejudice and the constant threat of seizures. It's a story that has inspired so much, including our podcast and a bursary I started a few years ago that's already helped more than half a dozen women living with epilepsy advance their education and careers. But it's even more than that. After all, we are, in a sense, all made of sound. Star stuff framed by the first sound waves, coalescing swirling gases from the Big Bang. Even in previous episodes, while we've been exploring sounds from outer space or sound baths or binaural beats, we've really been talking about the journey inspired by the story you're about to hear. The story about how everything and everyone we know is not only made of sound, but through that relationship with sound, connected to each other, including Mozart and Michelle. If someone had asked me, I wouldn't have been able to explain, not completely. Dancing around my wife's hospital bed, singing along to the tunes on the CD, playing DJ as I bantered about the music, as if she could hear me and respond. I believed she was more aware than the doctors gave her credit for. I saw the subtle signs. I experimented with her playlist, occasionally mixing in the classical music she usually avoided, but still weighing heavily toward her favorites. I could recite Prince and Abba lyrics by rote. The doctors insisted it was their medications 
that had fended off a fatal threat from seizures. But I had a hunch music played some part, and it might also key her recovery if I could find the right formula in time. It started years ago when I first met Michelle. Born in Chicago, raised in Toronto, Canadian, Jamaican, an accountant recently returned from Los Angeles. She told me that one night she had come home to find Clint Eastwood. Yes, that Clint Eastwood, sitting on her couch, waiting to take her roommate out on a date. Just another day in L.A. I was a freelance journalist, born in Glasgow, raised in New Brunswick, moved to Toronto to seek my fortune. Got lost along the way. From the moment we met, it was apparent to me that Michelle had a very nimble mind, coupled with an insatiable curiosity about everything. She would pepper me with questions, as if my vocation had given me access to a vast trove of information she wanted to absorb and understand. Michelle's questions made me reconsider my own curiosity and whether I'd become too jaded about the world around me. For Michelle, there was another purpose. Epilepsy is a chronic neurological condition. In 70% of the cases, the cause of the epilepsy is unknown. Severe seizures can cause brain damage or even death. But it's different for every person. Michelle's fear was that the seizures would chip away at her mind. Analyzing and discussing things was like running a checklist to confirm all systems go. And her ability to appreciate and enjoy her music was her primary way of confirming, especially post-seizure, that her mind had survived intact. She never seemed to go anywhere without her music player. She was a people person, much more extroverted than I was, and constantly engaging others in enthusiastic conversations. But as soon as those interactions were over, the earbuds would pop back in, she'd be dancing and swaying to the music with an expression of peace and joy. Michelle's favorites included pop music, gospel, R&B, and reggae. But she also spoke fluid rock and roll. She'd been introduced to Black Sabbath by her former boyfriend and, in her typical way, had got on to research the entire genre. I was raised in rock, but after seeing Amadeus, I started cultivating a taste for classical music and opera. Mozart. I can't think of a time when I didn't know his name. I was still playing. Michelle had passed her level sevens at the Toronto Royal Conservatory of Music while still in her early teens. So naturally, I expected she would share my taste for classical music. But as I soon discovered, she'd rather debate the preternatural talent of Michael Jackson than explain for the umpteenth time her lack of interest in Beethoven and Mozart. Her music got her out the door in the morning to face another day. The brave the commute on subways and buses packed with people too preoccupied to notice if she'd had a seizure. And it braced her to deal with an often toxic work environment. But her doctors were constantly experimenting with strong medications that reduced her seizures by numbing her brain and making her feel lethargic and disconnected. She said it was like turning the lights off. She rejected those extremes 
as well as their pressure to submit to risky surgical procedures. Music was her way to try and keep the seizures at bay without dimming her mind or limiting her life. But managing her epilepsy also included up to 15 pills a day. And she still had seizures, often at the worst of times, alone and surrounded by strangers. At best, she could expect indifference. At worst, she'd encounter a predator. Many people saw her as unworthy of help. Some saw her as a target. A black woman with glassy eyes, her lips moving, but unable to speak. They assumed she was drunk or high. I was in awe of her courage and her determination. Although her accounting skills made her highly regarded by employers, she was constantly getting fired for having seizures at work. She'd move on to the next job, even knowing the risks, whether it was a hostile workplace or a hazardous commute or, or both. One night, shortly after we moved into a two-story rental together, we had an argument. Michelle got so angry, she began to storm out of the house, grabbing her coat and snatching up her music player as she headed for the door. I scrambled after her. As I reached for my coat and she headed down the stairs, I briefly lost sight of her. Suddenly, I heard a scream full of anguish and despair. For a second, I didn't connect it to Michelle. And then I saw her standing at the bottom of the stairs, her music player in pieces around her. It had flown from her hand in her rush to reach the door. I never felt so guilty or ashamed. I feared that moment might have made her feel trapped there without her music player to draw on for strength to face the world outside that door. But I gratefully came to realize Michelle did not feel trapped. She felt safer with me than she'd ever felt alone. In a sense, I think we'd become each other's music. Sometimes when she felt a seizure coming on, she would rest her head on my chest and fall asleep to the rhythm of my heartbeat. She called it her comfort zone. If we were outside, she would give me a sign and I would tell her to focus on my voice. She said it was like floating away on a balloon and fighting to get back down to earth. For the purposes of the healthcare system, I was not only her husband, but her primary caregiver. But in truth, it was really Michelle who was taking care of me. Her love was fierce and unconditional. She had an amazing capacity for empathy, even for her adversaries. It gave me the space to forgive my own imperfections and accept others as they were. And even when all the odds seemed stacked against us, there was always room for dreams and laughter. And of course, music. As the years went by, the soundtrack would shift and evolve. Giraud, Blige, Gray, Nirvana. Michelle would find new sources of stress-busting music and load them to her playlist. Our spirited debates would continue. She convinced me that Prince was a musical genius and Whitney Houston, a generational voice on par with Aretha and LaBelle. I introduced her to some new rock and country tunes but I could never get her to sample even a little classical music. One day, 
After losing yet another job because of her seizures, Michelle and I were riding home in the subway, and I was worried. Seizures could be triggered by strong anxiety, but she gave me a little smile, popped her earbuds in, and leaned up against me. I could hear she was playing one of her favorites, Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Arriving at Eventually, Michelle became inspired to go back to school and become a paralegal. But after she had a seizure in class, some teachers made it clear she was not welcome back. She showed up every day, regardless. We were forced to take the college to the Human Rights Commission. The battle took most of a year, but she won. Michelle had broken down barriers, but the fight left her weak and exhausted. She was forced to drop out of school, and she slept a lot, rarely left the house. In the midst of all of this, a personal matter arose. An old friend from the Maritimes needed my help. It would require me to be far away from Michelle for a while, and we had not spent a night apart in more than 10 years, our entire relationship. But the prospect of demonstrating independence seemed to reinvigorate Michelle. We talked about every detail of the trip for weeks, made plans for friends to drop by and see if she was okay. We even arranged to have a community nurse do a house call. We spoke by phone the night before her birthday and she sounded so well and at peace, full of plans, feeling inspired. She wanted me to know she would be okay. She had her TV shows and her tunes queued up. And she laughed and she promised she would take her meds without me coaxing and cajoling. She hated taking those meds. I couldn't reach her for most of the next day, and a growing dread came over me. My fears were soon confirmed. A friend had found her unconscious. She was in a hospital after a major seizure. Her doctors were blunt. They showed me the brain scans and the ring of dark dead cells. Death was just a matter of time, they said. All that was left of the woman I knew was a body in a vegetative state called a waking coma, a mysterious condition where a patient appears to be awake but lacks any sign of awareness. They urged me to sign a do not resuscitate order or a DNR, insisting it would be an act of kindness. While I grappled with that, Michelle was facing an immediate threat. Unable to speak and confined to a bed, she was suffering continuous and violent seizures. Without the benefit of being able to consult with their patient, doctors were frantically trying various combinations of strong medications, the same kind Michelle had always rejected. But the doctors felt Michelle's mind would never recover anyway. And on the other hand, if they couldn't stop the seizures, she was going to die. But to me, it felt like you were killing the patient to cure the disease. Studies suggest up to 40% of waking coma patients are misdiagnosed. And my instincts were telling me maybe there was another way to protect Michelle from seizures 
and bring her back again. By this time, Michelle had moved from the ICU into a semi-private room with a small table and nightstand. I bought an old CD player for her bedside and began playing music. One day I walked into the room and my heart skipped a beat. Bathed in the light as the sun streamed in from the window, Michelle's body appeared to be moving to the rhythm of the music, almost as if she were dancing. Now, it might have been a trick of the light or my mind after too many sleepless nights, but it seemed real. Music was renewing her energy. An idea began to grow that maybe music was her way back again. I experimented with her playlist. I talked to her and sang along, joked about butchering her favorite songs. Her seizures began to subside. Maybe it was the meds. Maybe it was just the passage of time, or maybe, just maybe, it was the music. After many months in hospital, she was well enough to transfer to a long-term care facility. Although the seizures were under control, her doctors still considered her to be in a vegetative state. With more room came more personal effects, including a larger CD player with more capacity. By now, the nurses and care workers looking after Michelle had caught on to what I was doing. They started chiming in with good-natured ribbing about the musical selections, and they started singing while they were checking in on their patient. Privately, They'd share little things of interest about Michelle that they'd observed, like subtle eye movements and gestures that could possibly indicate awareness. I expanded the playlist far beyond anything we'd shared before. I would explain my reasoning for the new selections, ask her opinion, search for signs of a response. After more than 18 months in hospitals and nursing homes, I got Michelle into a brain study program at Western University that specialized in treating people deemed to be in a vegetative state. Among other things, the research involved exposing the patient to constant external stimuli, including music and sound. I was giddy with optimism. The day before she was due to transfer to Western, she had a seizure. The hospital called me at work. They said it was mild, but they were transferring her to a local hospital as a precaution. I jumped on the subway and headed toward her. She died while I was in transit. My wife and best friend, Michelle Antoinette Edwards, died on December 16th, 2013, almost two years after an epileptic seizure damaged her brain. I put her CDs in a drawer. For years, I found no joy in music of any kind. I read, I watched movies, kept the dream journal. I even started freelancing again. But it seemed a lot of my life was on mute. They tell me there's no normal way to grieve. For me, starting the Michelle Edwards bursary in 2016 was a way to honor her passion for advocating for others two $800 annual awards to women living with epilepsy to further their education and career goals. Creating the Sounds Interesting podcast was another step, a lighthearted show about everyone's relationship with sound. 
It resurrected the wonder Michelle and I shared about the mysterious power of sound. It was like reawakening my own curiosity. And then something incredible happened. I was at the 2019 Epilepsy Toronto General Meeting, preparing to present the bursaries, when two researchers gave a presentation about a study they had done. Their research suggested listening to Mozart could help people living with epilepsy reduce their seizures. After the conference, I arranged to interview the doctors at Toronto Western Hospital about their research. My name is Marjan Rafi. I'm a researcher. I work on how the brain activity of individuals with epilepsy changes by listening to music and how we can use this to reduce their seizures. Uh, my name is Tafik Valiente. I'm a neurosurgeon here at the Toronto Western Hospital Criminal Brain Institute and also a scientist. I flash back to all those days and nights in the hospital, playing the music, convinced it was keeping the seizures at bay. Had my intuition been right? Had science confirmed music had been helping Michelle? And it could help others as well? What a beautiful way to come to terms with Michelle's legacy. I had to know. One of the things that intrigues me so much about this is um, Michelle, my wife, uh, music was kind of her sanctuary. Mm. And it was her safe place to go when, you know, especially even for seizures. So, of course, she was listening to more like Prince and <laughs> ABBA. But, you know, she did find a lot of comfort in it. They said the results of their study showed listening to a specific selection, Mozart Sonata for two pianos, K448, for a few minutes each day, could reduce seizures by more than 30%. Yeah, that's it's I think for us, I mean, I think, you know, when you're in science, it's like, when you see stuff like that, it's just like, it's like, oh my God, there's just something so concrete about that, mm -hmm. right? It seemed the researchers were suggesting that I was right to be experimenting with the playlist because particular types of music affect the brain differently. And I think, you know, through the kind of the investigative work of Marjan, you know, actually she had, you know, found some very fascinating papers, you know, one actually out of Montreal, which is yeah. these people had studied different forms of music, uh, different composers and shown very different, significant difference between like Mozart and Beethoven, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, like, hugely different yeah. and so you can listen to all oh, classical music it's not as we talked they hit at something even more incredible they believe that in the future the type of music might be customized to each person you know nowadays with all this you know computer stuff and machine learning stuff you know who knows maybe we can actually make our own piece that is really good or it depends on the individual right and then the brain waves almost like a personalized medicine thing so you know we we have these kind of pie-in-the-sky kind of ideas. I thought about Michelle crafting the soundtrack to her life, creating her own personalized medicine with far more faith in the power of music than even Tofik and Marjan had when they started their study. I mean, I was super nihilistic. I think Marjan too was. I mean, you're yeah. Yeah. You had to wait and see. All of us motivated by intuition, a thread of hope that maybe there's more to music. Yeah. 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 Well, it sounds like you had the same feeling I did going to the hospital with this music and thinking, it can't be. Right. Yeah. But it could be. It could, it could be. Michelle, we were right all along. Music is medicine. Absolutely. Well, we can send you a paper where we can say almost for sure you probably was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, soon.
Of course, their study only addresses the effects of one Mozart sonata on people living with epilepsy. But with the brilliant work of researchers like Tofik and Margin, maybe one day we'll be learning about a wide range of amazing therapeutic effects from all types of music. I still can't listen to those CDs, but I'm enjoying all kinds of music again and sharing it with new friends. As for Mozart and Michelle, she'd probably argue that one day we'll discover Prince could help with epilepsy too. Personally, I like imagining the day a doctor yells, get me 10 dBs of purple rain, stat. Now, as I said at the outset, it's been two years since I recorded that personal essay and interviewed the music and epilepsy researchers. A lot has happened since then. The bursary is still going strong. Sounds Interesting is in its second season. And we've added co-host Gabriel Hutchcraft to our merry little podcast band. Two years? Well, yeah, it really feels like it. Even longer, maybe. <laughs> ah, yes, Gabe. Time flies unless, you know, there's a pandemic. Anyway, we decided we go back and check in the latest research developments. Uh, my name is Tafik Valiente. I'm a neurosurgeon at the Toronto Western Hospital. Uh, I'm a senior scientist here at the Crumball Brain Institute, uh, and I direct um, the Cranial Neuromodulation Institute, Crania, the Center for Advancing Neurotechnological Innovative Application, and the Max Planck University of Toronto Center for Neuroscience and Technology. And my specific uh, scientific and clinical interest is uh, epilepsy. And my long-term vision since I was a kid was to understand the brain. I'm Marjan Rafi, and I'm a postdoc fellow in Kremlin Brain Institute in the Neuron to the Brain Lab. And um, together we are um, studying how we can use music to reduce seizures in individuals with epilepsy. Just to review, Two years ago, Marjan and Tofik published a study that showed listening to a specific selection, Mozart Sonata for two pianos, K448, for a few minutes each day, could reduce seizures for people living with epilepsy by more than 30%. But we discovered their latest research is expanding their investigations in a vast new way, far beyond that one Mozart Sonata to examine about 2,000 classical pieces from different composers. We have a, a novel hypothesis, which is about uh, basically the importance of the unpredictability of the rhythmic structure on reducing seizures in individuals with epilepsy. We analyzed around um, 2,000 uh, classical pieces from different composers to categorize them into two groups, the ones with unpredictable rhythmic structures and the ones with uh, predictable rhythmic structure. You know, we don't think there's something specifically special about Mozart K448 as a piece in of itself. There's something unique in its structure, and we think that other pieces share that. And so that's why we've sort of done this sort of computational approach to sort of categorizing different pieces of music 
with that very specific thing that it's the structure of it and there's other pieces that share its structure. And so now we're very excited to see, you know, uh, how that works out. Uh, Martin, just, to, just to, I mean, the Joplin's in there though, no? Well, some people consider uh, Joplin as classical jazz piano player. So depending on uh, your point of view, Joplin can be considered as a jazz piano player. So kind of we are considering jazz as well, we could say, but uh, by Joplin, but yeah. You know, we actually had a really nice uh, chat with some, uh, uh, you know, individuals suffered epilepsy from Epilepsy Toronto yesterday, Marjan and I, and, you know, you know, there's, there's so many cultural types of music, right? There's so many different kinds of music, and we think that there's no cultural specificity. It's not westernized classical music uh, per se. It could be anything that shares, and that's the beauty about music, and particularly, you know, well, I think particularly um, satisfying for me because, you know, of the physics and math background, which is, I mean, it's, it's a mathematical construct, right? It's a, a temporal thing that evolves over time. It has a time signature, beats are broken down into, you know, specific units. So it's it's got a kind of guy that has that magic uh, in the sense of being something that's both emotional and, you know, very, very amenable to, to breaking it down mathematically. But we think there's an elemental component where your brain is Auto automatically tracks the beats in time and the activity of the brain follows those beats in time. And we think the structure of those beats is what sort of gives the effect uh, that we're, we're seeing in the, in the individuals with epilepsy. We'll have to stay tuned for now about where this is all going, but it's evident Marjan and Tofik's own journey of curiosity about our relationship with sound is not only clinical, but deeply personal, full of gratitude. I think it's a very, um, it comes to each person, as Tofik mentioned, each experience that we're having with the music. Uh, for me, music is, is a way to communicate with other people, is a way to communicate your emotions with other people, the joy, the peace, the excitement that you feel by listening to music. And I love that fact about music. And for me, this work is also is a demonstration of that because it's also capable of um, um, connecting uh, people on the scientific community and on the community itself, individuals with epilepsy, which in my mind is very meaningful. Yeah, and you know, I think I think uh, you know the one thing too, which I think uh, I think we're both very, you know very very happy about is that you know along this journey of trying to you know figure out you know what music does is the the fact that we have opportunities like this, for example, uh, to talk about epilepsy and to sort of raise awareness around it. And I think that's something that Marjan and I talked about very early on, which is sort of the universality of music. And, you know, we're not beholden to whether it works or not. And we're not, you know, we're, we're going to take a very objective look at, you know, what's going on here. But one way or the other, I mean, it, you know, to, to overuse the, the term, it's a win-win it's in many ways. Uh, because it does give us these kinds of opportunities to raise awareness, you know, during Epilepsy Awareness Month in March and also, you know, on, on Purple Day. So, so on many levels, you know, we, we, we love this, this project and uh, sort of exploring uh, this aspect of music. No, I just wanted to thank um, our um, founder, Epilepsy Ontario, as well as uh, basically all the members of our lab, Neuron to the Brain Lab and Cranby Brain Institute for all the supports that they've been providing me during the past couple of years. And of course, 
on top of the list, individuals with epilepsy. We would like to thank them for the opportunity that they give it to us for uh, doing this type of research. At the end of the day, it's not only about the music and the research, but also the awareness they are building about epilepsy and how its interaction with sound and rhythm may affect each individual person living with this mysterious disorder. Maybe we're even getting closer to a music therapy playlist that includes Prince. Michelle would have approved. You know, we do recognize the complexity of music, but, you know, we, we need to sort of focus our hypotheses to get the statistical power uh, to kind of make conclusions that we can then hopefully make our therapeutic playlist with. Um, I remember um, the first days that we were starting, we were having this dream that one day we would be able to build our own musical pieces using machine learning algorithms, which basically personalized to each person. Uh, as you said, maybe one day creating a playlist for them for each individual to reduce their seizures. But uh, that's definitely some of the interesting uh, goals in my mind, long-term goals at least. Yeah, I mean, I think music is transforms you one. I mean, I like, I find for me music, um, you know, it, it transports me to another place. I'm not really present. Time kind of passes and I'm not, you know, either in the present or the future. And I think that that's one of the amazing things, you know, it reminds me of, um, you know, uh, I don't know if you guys know Boston, but, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the guy who sort of founded Boston was an engineer and you know, he says, you know, a good song to me is just one that takes me away. We'd like to thank Dr. Tofik Valiente and Marjan Rafi for being so gracious and accommodating in the making of this episode. Thanks as well to Heather and Tanya, the Kremble Brain Institute and Toronto Western Hospital and Mackenzie, Jack and Epilepsy Toronto where you can read all the details about the Michelle Edwards bursary and apply online. The deadline is May 2nd, and for the first time in two years, the presentation will be in person June 18th at an Epilepsy Toronto event at College Park. Some friends have also started a Michelle Edwards bursary GoFundMe page. Remember, Michelle is spelled with one L, not two. With your generous support, we can do so much for women living with epilepsy. I'd also like to send a big shout out the former bursary winners Kirsten Huber and Nazanin Babai for being so supportive of this episode, and to the University of Toronto Faculty of Music for letting us record a student rehearsal of a Mozart selection as part of our research. Brian Garbett is our sound designer, and Bernadette Rilaraza is our social media director, and we're extremely grateful for them both. Thanks also to Playdate for our theme music. And thanks to the good folks at CBC's The Doc Project for helping shape some of the content in this episode. And finally, I have some bittersweet news. My friend and co-host Shiloh Fagan is leaving Sounds Interesting to intern at CBC Radio's The Current. It's a great loss for us, but I couldn't be happier or prouder. I can't thank Shiloh enough for all her hard work and dedication over the last two years. It would be hard to overstate her impact on the evolution of our podcast. I echo that sentiment. Shiloh was really fun to work with and always had the best insights. She's a great journalist, and I know she'll be just as great wherever else she is. They will be very lucky to have her. Hear you later, Shy. Next time on Sounds Interesting. 
an ode to the Windsor hum.